What is up, everybody? Isaac here with Civil Engineering Academy. Excited to be with you today. I, uh, today's episode of our podcast, I actually bring Mark back on and we talk about performance-based design and uh, what that is. So, you know, a lot of people in the structural engineering world might be confused what performance-based design actually is. So we have a quick conversation about it. It's not going to be a comprehensive uh, topic discussion, but it's growing in popularity. Uh, so I bring Mark on and we talk about it and it's going to be a good one. So uh, hang around and it's going to be coming right up after this. All right. What is up, Mark? Hey, good. I'm doing well. Um, we got a little snow this morning, Isaac. Did you look out the window today? I did. And my kids want to learn to ski, so I might do a ski thing, but nice. it's going to be a zoo. So nice. we'll see how it goes. I got to fire up the snowblower, so it's a good day. <laughs> I quickly realized I needed one of those when my back started filling it. So yeah, yeah. I guess that yeah. happens when I turn forty. <laughs> Your back starts right. going out. Back oh. goes out. Or maybe it's the kids. I don't know. One or the other. <laughs> so, uh, Mark, we wanted to talk today quickly about performance-based design and what that's all about. Um, I think before we do that, though, maybe it might be helpful to talk about the history of structural design, maybe up to this this point and and uh how performance-based design even came into play or just get your thoughts around that yeah so, what do you so think this is a this is a pretty uh i don't i'll call it a sophisticated subject you can get uh pretty deep into uh down in the weeds on this thing and isaac as you know I, i'm not uh an expert on this subject i do know a little bit about it and i can tell you some things. Uh, and hopefully for our listeners, this just kind of maybe sparks some interest uh, for those that are interested in structures and learning more about performance-based design to maybe maybe dig into it a little bit deeper. So perfect. Uh, we just kind of want to do an overview of uh, what it is and maybe where it's applied. And um, But yeah, I'd like to start with uh, maybe some history. So um, structural engineers are very familiar with um, any any good practicing structural engineer is familiar with the codes, right? That dictate they're very prescriptive. The code. Yeah, the code. So we've got our IBC codes, right? Which is the prevailing codes. And then we have specific codes that are uh, directed towards the uh, materials that we might be using. So if we've got structural concrete in a in a design, then obviously we're going with an ACI. Uh, 318 uh, type code for the prescriptive uh, requirements that are required for structural concrete. And then steel has AISC 360, right? So every area laid kinda, out, right? Yeah. I mean, you're going to the code. Kinda has their, something. Yeah. They all have their codes that they, that they fall back on. And so, and, and kind of the history behind that is um, there was a guy back in the day, um, I think it was in the 30s, uh, Mr. Uh, the Hardy Cross, who uh, incidentally invented the uh, the moment distribution method. I don't know if our listeners, uh, you know, that have gone through back. Yeah. Structural engineering classes. And it's my understanding I had to go through that. And it was it's a cool uh, method of solving indeterminate type structures. Right. Where you. Mm -hmm. um Use this method that, uh, and sometimes it's even called the Hardy Cross method because he developed that. Well, he uh, 
he was a smart guy and and what he came out uh, with is this prevailing uh, I'll say concept or this prevailing thought um, that structural engineering um, should be based on standards, which is a good thought. It should be based on standards. You know, it's kind of a best practice, right, for things that actually work, that perform, that um, can preserve life safety uh, in a structure. If we figure out something works, let's do it, right? And, and so everybody and on the same page. Yeah, make sure everybody's on the same page. And then uh, let's codify it, right? So let's put it in a book um, that uh, codif codifies it, that makes it prescriptive, that everybody can follow the same rules, and then everybody's practicing like they should. Um, and so that was kind of the prevailing uh, thought behind creating uh, the codes that, uh, that we use today. Okay. So why is, so along comes performance-based design. So what is that and why is it a major topic of conversation these days? Well, what started happening is, and again, this uh, originated in, in California because obviously they experience a lot of seismic activity out there. And during kind of the tech explosion, um, I'm not a historian. I don't know if that's the official name they throw on that event, but during the, you know, the mid seventies through probably the mid nineties when, um, the technology, uh, Silicon Valley, um, you know, the, uh, the computer technology really started exploding and companies, uh, and then plus there was a lot of seismic events through that era. Um, All right. I've heard that they were as frequent as, you know, like every 18 months or something crazy like that. And, I'm old enough that I lived through some of those times. And, you know, that was that was always kind of the thing is, you know, California gets a lot of earthquakes and you hear about them in the news a lot. And so um, hey, they're just used to them these days. Yeah. Yeah. But what was happening is these owners of these tech companies, their buildings were crumbling. Right. When an event would happen and they would suffer damage to their building, they'd have to evacuate all of their employees and then. They were suffering economic loss, right? Because they couldn't get all their employees back to work. And so they started demanding uh, the structural engineers tell them if their buildings were going to perform, right, for a given seismic event. We get the next 5.8 magnitude earthquake. What's my building going to do, Mr. Structural Engineer? And most of them were just kind of like back then were, I, I don't know, you know, your, your building's code compliant. You know, that's basically all they could say. And so sense. from that process, also, there was some pushback from, uh, you know, the insurance industry, the companies that were insuring these buildings um, to have something um, defined as far as how a building would perform. And so I think that was the that was the birthplace of this performance based design. OK, concept. Um, why why does a performance-based design, do you think, why is that a, a better option sometimes for customers or clients? Why would they want to choose that? Well, because um, they have, uh, I mean, primarily we're, we're, we're worried about life, life safety. That's the primary concern. And that's the base concern with the code prescriptive, you know, requirements on buildings. But sometimes there's uh, additional 
uh, requirements that owners have that are, I mean, they're economic requirements um, or economic needs. They want to use their building after an event. Um, and they want to have some, uh, you know, level of assurance that that's going to happen. And so uh, that's that's when it's used is when um, clients are um, demanding those kind of things. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, there can you talk, walk through like the four levels that um, usually you have with these performance based designs and and also um, where it makes sense to to maybe use these in terms of um, what kind of building you're building? Yeah. So uh, the built environment. So uh, most buildings, 93 percent of our buildings that are built are in the one to three story range. Right. So. Mm. Most homes, uh, most retail places, uh, most, you know, businesses, they're in that 93%. Then you start getting into a little bit higher buildings um, that get up to about 14 levels. Um, that if So if I go up to 14 levels, that will incorporate like 99% of all the buildings. Wow. And then, and then there's like 1% of the buildings that are high rises that are 14 stories or above, um, that, uh, that really, I think benefit the most from this performance based design uh, approach. All buildings can be, uh, designed this way, but, um, it's really the, you know, the high rises that, um, I think benefit the most from this approach. So really this falls, I mean, typically this performance-based design comes into play in this 1% of buildings over, you know, real tall buildings. Yes, it can be applied to others. And again, it's it's all kind of client-based if clients want a, an additional level of performance. And we'll we'll go through those real quick, but um, then it, it can be applied to any building. But what happens on these high rises is they're subject to more risk, right? So you've got seismic loads, you've got wind loads, you've got a lot more things happening um, to a high rise building than happens on a, a typical low sure, rise or, you know, yeah, a smaller structure. And so, um, Analyzing the the structure and developing these levels of performance um, actually can be a, a beneficial thing, and we we can talk about that. But so, like, how how is this presented to a customer that's building something like this? As an engineering firm, you say we could go this route, or we could go this route. We can go prescriptive, or we can, you know, you you choose some of the things you want to meet, and we can match that. Yeah, it's usually. Usually the uh, structural engineer understands what type of project it is, right? And then they understand what the client's needs are, and then they can start proposing some of these different things, um, some of these different per, uh, performance levels. Got and it. if we if we talk about what those are real quick, Isaac, the performance yeah. levels. So the base, the base performance level they call collapse prevention or cp and that's just that's basic just keep the building standing so it doesn't fall down this um the next one they call life safety performance level so the building remains standing it's relatively you know structurally 
is still kind of holding together. There's some damage. <coughs> Excuse me. But I'm, I'm uh, per, personally, I'm a little confused between those two. If your building's still standing, isn't it mean you've you've got life safety? Well, in collapse prevention, you might have some interior elements. Maybe the the suspended ceiling is falling on people. Uh, maybe there's some internal, <clears throat> excuse me, but like um, internal elements of that building that are still falling down and smashing people. You know, the building's going to stay up, but maybe there's some internal elements that aren't aren't going to be so safe. That makes when, sense when the big one hits. So that's collapse prevention. Then there's life safety, which is the next level up in performance. And so again, the building still it's standing up. There's some damage. Beams are cracked, floors are cracked, you know, whatever's going on. Um, but people are able to get out and um, and the building is not usable after that. It, there's, it's suffered enough damage that you can't go back in and occupy it. All right. Then there's the next level, which they call immediate occupancy. So there may be some damage to the utilities in this uh, performance level. So maybe the lights won't come on yet. Maybe there's, uh, I don't know, the gas utilities aren't functional quite yet, but people can actually go in and occupy the space without fear that something's still going to fall down and the structure's not going to perform. Okay. And then the highest performance level they call is the operational level where, I mean, it's almost like the earthquake never happened. The lights are still on, mechanical systems still work, the structure is intact none of the systems the facade the perimeter systems the curtain wall systems all those are still intact then go right back to work or that building is fully fully usable after after an event um so i'm just thinking out loud here that sounds more like hospitals schools things of that nature yes so um the risk categories yes is what you're talking about. So there's risk categories one through four, I believe in, in the IBC. And most, uh, most buildings fall in that risk category two. Um, and then, you know, hospitals get up into the, the risk category four. And so, um, yeah. Didn't you so build the, your house to a risk category four? I heard <laughs> make sure that thing's solid. Yeah. It would have been it would have been a little more expensive than I wanted. I I felt like I could take the risk by not going that that that's okay. stringent. Yeah, that's very helpful to understand those different levels. Um, it almost sounds like they are comparable to risk categories in my mind. Um, yeah, but I can see that. Well, what are, happens is in yeah. the code prescribed scenario, they just bump things up by a factor of of safety, right? So if you've got a risk category one or two. You know, your your factor is just 1.0. And then if you start getting up into the other risk factors, you start getting into 1.3 and, Makes and higher, where they're just bumping up the structural requirements by a factor. They're not really analyzing the performance, meaning they're not really modeling it, running a uh, an earthquake, an actual earthquake acceleration uh, spectra through through the model and actually looking at the response of the building, right? They're still just they're still just adhering to uh, prescriptive parameters. 
I'm just thinking out loud here, but I'm I'm thinking where is this where is something like this applied to other industries? And uh, as we were talking earlier, we mentioned like fire engineering, maybe doing something that more performance based as to maybe what they want to to cover if you had a a fire in your building. But I'm I'm also wondering like I I don't know this, but I'm wondering if it is applied to other industries or even other engineering fields like software or something like that, where you choose kind of which level of performance you want to go and try to reach that. Yeah. Well, they're the higher end uh, structural engineering software programs do accommodate performance-based design now. Um, you know, one specific that I, that I know of is the ETABS. Um, is a specific one, and that's uh, a product by Computers and Structures Inc. Hmm. And it actually is geared towards these high high-rise buildings, which are again in the one percent. And most engineers, most structural engineers, they never design in that in that, that level. Yeah, but this software accommodates that, and it's a nice resource for them to have. But I've I've watched um, demonstrations of the software where they've they've run uh, they've modeled a building. Uh, the one I saw actually had um, the lateral seismic force resisting system was a they called it a, a ductile reinforced concrete core that actually had coupling beams they called it which were over the the openings in there. Hmm. And they walked through how they modeled that. Um, how they they modeled the uh, coupling beams to be a yielding or a non-ductile element in the lateral force design. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then they actually ran the Northridge earthquake accelerations through the model, and they looked at the re- at the reaction of the building, how it performed, and what was cool about it, Isaac. And this is what what was cool, and I'll. I'll tell you a story about when I was involved with a, a, a development here in Salt Lake City called the City Creek um, development. But uh, what was cool about that is they could actually view how the building performed under a real a real scenario. And they that's not the only scenario they could throw through it, right? That was just an actual acceleration from an actual earthquake from mm-hmm. seismographs that they've actually used to measure accelerations, you know, a real life scenario. And they could they could see the performance of the building. They could test the strains uh, and the stresses on the core and see how it performed. And rather than just adhering to a prescribed uh, set of uh, rules from the code, they could actually, you know, move uh, reinforcement um, and, you know, adjust the reinforcement ratios in this in this core wall hmm. and actually um, get a cheaper uh, structure, meaning less less steel was required or less less concrete, maybe a little maybe using a little higher performance concrete, a higher strength concrete versus, you know, more mass or more concrete that was maybe uh, of a lower strength. Um, anyway, the, the, the bottom line is, is they could get uh, a little better uh, efficiency out of the, the system by actually looking at what was going on and actually save the owner money in construction costs at the end of the day because the building was really fine-tuned, right? So That's they awesome. Were, 
They were putting the additional steel where it was needed, where they needed ductility. They needed things to yield. They could make adjustments. The coupling beams, they could adjust, redesign. They could really target uh, the design rather than just going through and, you know, uh, making everything uh, per the code, which, again, is very prescriptive. And so my you- my first exposure to this, I'll, I'll just tell you a quick story. Back in, this was, tell you a little bit about how old, old I am, but. Back in 2007, I was I was involved with uh, I was with a uh, a structural concrete specialty subcontractor back in those days, and I was part of the design assist team, and we were going in to the structural engineer, which was uh, MKA up in Seattle, and this was back when performance based design was just kind of cutting edge, and MKA. Uh, Magnus and Clemensic and Associates, um, they're pretty progressive, and they're um, they blew me away because they had they had all of these models. They were actual physical models of the cores that they were going to design. Back then, we called uh, the 32 story residential tower that was part of that City Creek development. They called that Tower One, and they had an actual physical model of. Tower one and the core wall system that they were going to design. And they had two, two systems there. They had actual physical models. And so that you could see the density of the rebar that was to be required if they adhered to the prevailing codes of the day. Hmm. And back then, I think we were IBC 2003, I want to say. Um, and then they showed what a performance-based design would yield. And the the steel in the shear walls was significantly lighter. Wow. Um, and so when I saw that, I was like, whoa, you know, that's that represents a lot of tonnage of rebar. And it's going to be a huge savings for the owner, you know, just because they don't have to go through this prescriptive uh, design process. That so, makes sense. It was kind of eye-opening to me at that time. That's when I was first exposed to it. I mean, I mean, so as we drill down to this, it sounds like the biggest benefit to doing this performance-based design is that you actually save uh, money on the construction you, of this thing. By yeah, and I would hesitate making that material. as a blanket statement. You can. You can. I wouldn't just make that as a blanket statement across all projects, but... You can save money. You can it, because you're actually analyzing the performance and you can fine tune it, right? That's and, cool. And there may be areas where you can take material out. Maybe you have to add in other areas, but it's a it's a good possibility. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> well, it sounds like you hit, you touched on some, I guess, some brief negatives there that maybe you have to add material in other places. Are there any other negatives going this route that you can think of? Um. Well, some of the the big negatives is just that it's just it's been around a little while, but it's still kind of cutting edge, especially when you're you're trying to go uh, and approach municipalities, right, which are in charge of public safety and enforcing provisions that uh, ensure public safety, which includes the building codes, right? Right. They're in charge of enforcing those things and making sure that any structure that's built uses those codes in, in construction. Well, if you throw the code out the window, uh, what's the municipality left to do? You know, what, 
what do they have to hang their hat on? They're a little bit worried about that. They, they get, they get scared. Uh, yeah, that that's definitely an issue I see. Um, is this even taught in schools? I mean, is this a, is this a layer that is taught in schools uh, outside of learning the prescriptive stuff? That you yeah, know it's taught in schools. It would be more of an upper level, upper, upper division type class. class. Yeah, it's not. It wouldn't be something that's taught in your in your base uh, engineering courses. But uh, yeah, it's an it's an upper level structural dynamics type type course. Um, okay. um, are there other resources? for anyone that's interested in this topic that they could dive into this a little more that you're aware of? Yeah, there's, there's a few. Um, but I, I would just go back really quick, Isaac, to the the municipality thing. So Mm -hmm. when I was involved with that city Creek job, it took, it took quite a while for them to educate, uh, the building department to, you know, get familiar with what was actually going on. Um, and the, the performance based design also took a third party peer review, um, which also gave the municipality, in this case it was Salt Lake City, a level of comfort with what what design was being developed. So uh performance based designs always require uh, a peer review. Gotcha. So I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that's that. you know another possible negative going this route but uh, it brings a sense of comfort to everybody yeah obviously checking this so that's yeah. good to know it's just a good idea because we're kind of getting outside the prescriptive parameters but again it's just it's just a really cool um kind of uh thing that's that's uh it's it's just it's just it's really interesting to me and again mm-hmm. i told you my story about when i first ran into it and just seeing the uh the efficiencies that can be realized when when going this route and just analyzing buildings with you know real world data you know you're not just going to the code and trying to find you know prescriptive uh, acceleration and 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 spectra that's in the code awesome. you're actually running you know real life uh, accelerations from uh, an earthquake you know into your model and seeing what your building does it's just i don't know to me it's just kind of a cool thing um, so who's who's the who's the group that's kind of on the cutting edge of this? Who's publishing so, stuff that people? Yeah, can check so out? I think Berkeley is kind of the uh, you know the guys that are that are on the cutting edge of this. Uh, obviously, out of California, um, and there's a lot of uh, progressive, I'd, I'd say, structural design firms. I mentioned a- MKA, um, Skidmore Owings and Merrill SOM is another one. There's there's a lot of uh, Pacific Coast type uh, engineering firms that are really, uh, you know, well versed in this. But okay, uh, but a good resource is uh, comes out of uh, what's called the Pacific Earthquake Engineering Research Center, um, or PEER, P-E-E-R, um, and they they publish a guide that's called the Guidelines for Performance Based Seismic Design of Tall Buildings. And they did that just to kind of give some structure to performance-based design because it is kind of wild, wild west. At first, it was getting outside the code. Um, And this kind of gives some, uh, I'll call them best practices that uh, engineers should follow as they get into uh, 
performance-based design. So we'll link that up in the show notes so people can go check that out. Um, Mark, this has been a fun conversation to have with you talking about performance-based design. This was actually new to me. I it's the first really I dove into this and really started looking into it. So uh, definitely informative to me. Hopefully it is for others, <laughs> yeah. especially in the structural engineering world. So okay, um, yeah, thanks for joining me today. You bet. All right, we'll see you on the next one. Okay, see you, man. Okay, see ya. Bye.